I'm a, a conversational interviewer, right? Like yeah, it's not, it's same. not necessarily, a, I don't have a bunch of things I want to talk about normally. Right. Right. But after listening to yours, I was like, man, I got to figure it out. You know what I mean? Okay. So anyways, without further ado, yeah. I'm so, so, so very honored and excited to have uh, the mysterious and <laughs> it's not a video podcast, but I really appreciate waving your hands around the, the you know, incredibly inspiring, um, philanthropic even, uh, Chris Doe. I wondered if you could just introduce yourself real quick to the listeners. Sure. You're listening to Kent Selvis, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Doe. I'm the founder of The Future. I'm a recovering graphic designer. I'm a serial entrepreneur and a middle child. And I have this really big, hairy, audacious goal, which is to teach a billion people, a billion, how to make a living doing what they love. So this is this is really interesting to me. There was, there was a couple of things that I really tweaked to while listening to your podcast. And, and one of the things was in discussion with um, Amelie. Amelie? Is that right? Honestly, yes. You were talking about about having to have culture, and, and when you when you have an organization, she was speaking about having an organization that was essentially just her and a bunch of contractors. And you were like, "How can you have culture when it's just you?" And it was you used the phrase mission, vision, and values, which I found really really interesting. And I wonder if you could just expand on the concept of those three things as the core tenets of a of an organization. I'm not an expert at this, but I'll try my best to explain in the way that I understand it. <laughs> and if you think about it, the, the analogy I'll make is vision is something that only you, the founder, can see because it doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. And it's far into the future. So when you have a vision for this, you work towards building it. But right. a vision is like a mirage because if you don't actually take action towards it, you will actually never achieve it. Right. And so then we get into our mission. So the mission defines milestones given this period of time mm -hmm. and so that you can actually hit it and check it off the list and theoretically your mission brings you closer to your vision right and lastly your values are what you believe is right and wrong and it's how you govern your life um there's there's certain things like easy virtue and then there's real core values and they're, they're a little bit different mm -hmm. it's like when we're never really tested and uh, to see if we're resolved in the, what we believe to be true until we're tested. Because people say, I believe in this, I champion that, I'm for these ideas. And it's easy to say with your mouth, much more difficult to do in action. And so I usually, if I'm going to look at someone and say, what are your values? I'd look at their action and not listen to what they say. Right, yeah. right. You know, it's interesting when it comes to values, most especially is the, the, the idea that um, we have a very empty platitudinal sort of, Blackout our blackout our Instagram profile for the day or something, and I, or or the Ukraine uh, flag colors, and if somebody had somebody had posted it was like uh, this is what we believe, and I'm like, but how are you standing up for the things you believe? And that's what I'm I'm most curious about because we are very good at talking about the things that we believe in without actually pushing past that into the action stage of things. Do you find that you you spend time? making the people who work for you and answer to you, like 
understand that you have these values and they're they're core to the company or is it more of a freedom of expression situation? I, I think both the actions that you take and how you articulate your actions are really important because all all transformation, all real understanding comes from language. And so if I perform a specific set of actions and from an outsider who's looking at it, who doesn't have full context, they may not mm -hmm. understand what's going on. And even if they watch you repeatedly, they still may walk away like with a feeling, but until you can articulate it, the feeling doesn't become crystallized and it doesn't become clear. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to to know what it is that you stand for and then to be consistent with taking actions towards that and, and to be okay sometimes for you to falter and to realize when you have those moments of weakness for those to be learning opportunities versus for you to participate in negative self-talk. Yeah. We can spiral down that road too. So what I'm seeing is there's certain things like we call them virtue signaling, how you signal to other people in the tribes in which you feel affinity towards that you want to belong to, and you'll make meaningless posts on social media, which is, is pretty cheap to do. Yep. But then you don't really do anything. And you want to just send those signals out. And it's unfortunate that it seems like younger people today get caught up in virtue signaling. And if somebody were to choose not carefully the words that they say and you we get them we get them on a candid off moment then we boil it down and then we go into cancel mode yeah we need to look at the body of work and the actions that someone's taking consistently over time if we want to judge them but the first thing we should do is we should judge ourselves before we judge other people mm -hmm. well that actually brings me to something else entirely and and, and i mean it's still along the lines of being self in, uh, introspection and, and I'm really interested in this is that you had said uh hold your opinions loosely and i like the whole the whole phrase you didn't actually know the whole phrase in the moment yeah. and i'm like god i wish you don't know the whole phrase because i i was like i was in that it was in that stage where i thought very carefully about the things that you that i've heard you say in those episodes is that yeah. you will have you will have a very definitive feeling about or a, a definitive reaction to what someone may say and in that moment, you will challenge them by re repeating what they've said. Like, say, I've heard this from you. This is what I've heard. And then you'll challenge them with your own perception. But I've watched you go, oh, right. No, that's, yeah, you're right. I understand. I understand better. And it's one of those interesting things that I don't really hear in conversation that I wonder if it's something that you've learned to do to to, to repeat what you have heard from the person so that they can then verify or dispute your understanding of what they said. Yeah. I think the the proper phrasing is to hold strong opinions weekly. But I don't like the word weekly. <laughs> I like loosely. I think it's loosely, good. but you know, you see strong and weak, right? Mm. So it works as counterpoints. For sure. Balancing statements, the big small, the yeah. hard soft. So I understand why that expression works that way, but Essentially, all that means is you should have opinions about lots of things. Mm -hmm. But when you are presented with better information, you should change your opinions quickly. Yeah. And there's lots of things that conspire against you to do that. And I understand. And I'd, I'd love to just take a minute and explain why. And we should also create space for ourselves to, to be forgiving when we don't do what it is we're supposed to do. <laughs> so here's idea number one, which is I, I heard Tony Robbins say this, which is, the single biggest driver of human action is the need to be consistent. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. to be consistent with ourselves. When we say, I'll pick you up at the airport, or I promise, or you place your hand in the Bible, I swear to tell the whole truth, you know, so help me. It's like nothing will happen to you if you lie. Right. But the act of you speaking out loud through the ceremony and put your hand on the Bible, and we've all come to accept within a society when you do that, for you to now lie would tear your soul apart. Not in your eternal soul, but like you're going to have a hard time looking yourself in the mirror. Most non-sociopathic people would have a hard time lying to themselves like that. Yeah. And, and we hold these things to be true. And like we want to cut someone down, you'll say something like, you're not being consistent with yourself or mm-hmm. in not flattering way, you'll say, Hugh, you've changed. <laughs> That's not a compliment. No, <laughs> hardly <Hey."> ever. <laughs> right. Or you're two faced. That's even worse. Or you're yeah. being duplicitous. Yeah. So those are all ways that we can cut people. But isn't life about evolving and changing? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the things you preferred when you were 10 to when you're 20 uh, to 30 and 50, they should change. You should not love Barney anymore as an adult. Yeah. And there was time weird. when Barney was great and Sesame Street was great. And if you're a Backstreet Boys fan, maybe they were still great to you. I don't know. Right. But we evolve. And that's the beauty of life and maturity and wisdom and experience. And so we have this thing. It's inertia. It's momentum that when we move in a direction, it's very hard for us to break from it. And mm-hmm. when people want to manipulate you into doing something, they make you consistent with yourself. And you'll see what happens here. Right. So salespeople have realized this, that there's a psychological play that they can pull on your strings, which is to get you to make small commitments, saying yes to several things. Hmm. And four or three yeses into it, they're going to ask you for the sale. Now you can't back out anymore. Right. This is why they say, would you like to get a free sample today? And you're like, yes. That's your first yes. Then hmm. you go in and sit down and like, can I apply this? Yes. And do you, is good health important to you? Yes. Do you want to look young? Yes. Well, you can buy this bottle for $175 today. Should I get you one or two? Right. And you know you don't want to buy it. You were not prepared to do all these things, but they got you in this loop of saying so many yeses that now you can't get out of it. So what's happened in modern society is anybody who asks us a question, what is our immediate response? What is our knee-jerk default response? It's no. (laughs) What's your name? No. How old are you? No. Because you want to know something so that you can then get them to say yes to the thing that they don't want to say no to. Door-to-door sales. This is the exact script and playbook they have. Are you the head of the household, sir? Yes. You know, is good health important to you? They go through the same thing. And then next thing you know, you're buying a $34 bottle of rug shampoo and you don't even have a rug. <laughs> That's what's happening there. <laughs> so it's important to me to practice this thing where it's, it's like somebody had said this to me, and I, I just love the pairing of these words, is you're, you're, you're passionately detached. Right. Which is like a weird oxymoron. Like, how can you be passionate and detached? Well, you choose when you need to be excited about something, to be attached to it, to want to see it all the way through. But when that idea no longer serves you, you need to detach. Like yeah. one of the highest things we should all aspire to is to seek truth. Mm-hmm. And, and truth, it's not as clear cut as we all like to think. There's some scientific verifiable truth, but most of it is subjective opinion and observation. And mm-hmm. we also know with science that when new science appears, we're not to say that the science was bad. It's just we have more data today. And so we, we have this beautiful thing. It's called changing our mind. And we can use it. <laughs> when it happens, not enough, yeah. <laughs> not enough of us use it. So when I get into a conversation with somebody, I come into it with a strong opinion. 
Right. And as a self-described critical thinker, when you present a better argument, I will acquiesce and I'll say, that's a superior idea. Didn't think of it that way. I got to let go. Yeah. I admit all the time, well, I've learned something out of this, you know, this, this conversation, I run another podcast in which I talk about getting fired and in, in mm. the process of that discussion, it's not about getting fired. And I always say, it's not about the hurt. It's about the healing. So how do you, how have you gotten past with what's going on right now, watching everybody lose their jobs? How did you learn to move past that particular hurt, whether or not you were responsible, they were responsible to reorg, whatever, losing your job is losing your job. So I will be in the middle of the conversation and I'll recognize the pattern in which we're following that allows me to have a theme for that moment and allow me to, to see myself more empathetically through that person to get so I can get an idea of their mindset while they're in it. And that's how, I mean, that's how I do a lot of what I do, but I think it's good if I, in one moment, have an opinion about job loss or whatever it is to in that conversation, recognize that maybe I was mistaken and it's good for me to be able to say, and I've gotten really good at saying, I learned, I learned differently right now. I think mm. it's very difficult when you have been part of marketing and advertising for this is nearly 25 years that I've been doing marketing and whatnot and watching originally, now you're, you're part of the same sort of cadre as I am, but like watching originally someone fight tooth and nail for their opinion. Even if you know it's wrong, you can't fight them because they were part of the old guard. And it's it was my intention very early on to learn how to be more receptive. You know, I think part of part of that is, you know, having kids and learning how to be a bit more diplomatic overall. <laughs> when you um I look back and I, I think I think back to uh, you had said, oh, I started about eight years ago. You'd started doing content creation for YouTube about eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and it was something I know it, was, it felt like a very offhand comment, but it really stuck with me. You said I was laughed at. I was told I was stupid. I was told it was a waste of time. But you had what, for lack of a better term, you had a vision for what you wanted. And what I really enjoyed about that offhand comment was it was an inflexibility of your goals, right? Like you said, this is what I want. How did you come about that decision? It could not have been an easy decision to make. How did I come about the decision to pursue content? Yeah. Well, after a number of years of succeeding as a designer and a motion designer and commercial, yeah. you know, like you, that's a, that's a real departure, don't you think? Or, mm -hmm. or is it straight along the same lines? Um, from a career point, it's a pretty radical departure from a lifeline. It's a completely consistent with who I am. Right. So I'll okay. give you the answer. That's a little bit more nuanced and complex and it won't be so soundbitey. I don't want sound bites. I'll okay, be honest cool. with you. I'm not interested yeah. in that. It's, yeah. it, it's the truth, right? So I'm going along a path in my life. I think I'm going to be a computer scientist because that's the, what I was told, you know, given my, uh, skin tone, my hair color, you know, it's like, I'm going to be a computer scientist in a, many, a long line of computer scientists, right? Right. And then I have this itch and I want to be a designer. So I, I change paths and I'm like, okay, this is the way I need to be. And then I become a designer and I go to school. And then before I get out of school, I, I was mentally prepared to do entertainment design and packaging, mm. movie posters, uh, editorial spreads and CD uh, music CD box sets, right? Yeah. What, what we grew up in, exactly. grew, grew up with. And then I stumbled upon animation. 
in what was then what would become then known as motion graphics and i just abandoned print design i'm like i spent four years thinking this is what i was going to do right i saw something more interesting better that was more challenging and i sunk my teeth into that and during that period in which i ran blind from 1995 to around 2000 uh, what is it 18 ish i i was just like reinventing the company every three to five years because you can't say stay in that same spot right because you'll be irrelevant we started out doing um animated type grew into doing animated logos and then doing fully animated spots and then integrating live action all the way to the part where we shoot mostly live action and don't even do motion graphics anymore right so it's the full spectrum and then i get into doing branding and brand design and marketing and reconnecting with my advertising interests and passion and that excites me for about two years and then i think i think i'm just changing clothes but i'm going to the same dance right and i want to different thing. I don't even want to dance in where I want, I want to climb trees or I want to do something different. And I was searching for what that next thing might be. I didn't know at that time it would be creating content on YouTube. In fact, I thought it was the wrong idea. Okay. But I have enough conviction, fortitude, and grace for myself to say, you're going to try a bunch of things. Some things won't work and it's totally okay. Mm-hmm. Just try and have fun. And I was also kind of free freed up from the fact that I didn't need to work to make money anymore. Um, I had enough money saved. We have enough assets. And so I'm like, I get to do what people want to do when they're able to do it, which is to have total freedom. Right. So I'm going to choose something. I'm going to choose something for me. It took me for a while. It took me a while to kind of fall in love with the idea of being on camera and creating content and teaching. It took a while. Yep. Yeah. And so what happens is you have people who love you who support you, who want to see you succeed. And this is so strange. It feels like I mean, it's not midlife for me at that point, but it's like, is this some kind of midlife crisis that you're going through? And they don't understand because anybody that acts inconsistent with the way they've acted in the previous 20 years, talking about consistency, right? they start to freak out. And I start doing things that upset people. I'm not doing it to upset you. You're just upset that I'm doing it, which is right. two totally different things. Mm-hmm. I start disclosing how, how you make money in a business, how you charge as a freelancer, how you get paid more, and how to make a profit, all these kinds of things. And it was upsetting to business owners. There's the, they're the ones who said nasty things about me behind my back in closed rooms, which hmm. then ultimately filtered back to me. Right. You know, and then there were people in my space, my business coach, and all kinds of people were like, this is crazy. Why would you do this? Just keep working on the company. I'm like, that's your dream. It's not my dream anymore. Right. This one I'm doing for me. Uh, you do mention having had a business coach and you have mentioned him by name and I apologize that I can't recall his name off. Kieran McLaren. Right. And so you had him for, it was not a short period of time. Like it was a number of years, correct? 13 years. Mm-hmm. 13 years. And so in the transition be, between being this business owner of a motion graphics and, and commercial production company to content creation was that a was he part of that flux change he was were you still running this other company at the same time you had a like a hands-off sort of this is my production company scenario while doing the content creation yeah the way i manage is i hire really good people i train them i Mm -hmm. hopefully help to elevate them Mm -hmm. and then i put them in positions of leadership and give them lots and lots of autonomy Right. And I've done that since the beginning. It's just a rinse and repeat process. And then you find a really good team and they're happy, you're happy. And so you start to kind of just have a lot of free time. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, I don't want to, well, it's interesting. And you, you'd actually said it was one of the best little things that I've heard was uh, it, you were, I can't remember, you're speaking to Mo, I guess. And yeah. you were saying um, you're trying to explain the training methodology of the, uh, I do, we do, you do. And the, yes. that that's how you develop autonomy with your employees is you show yeah. them and they shut up, then you work together right. and then you shut up. Yeah. I just love, I love the idea of that being, that's how you make someone good at their job. Right. Because mm-hmm. we are from, we are from the troubleshooting, learn as you go shoot from the hip generation because it was never been not a lot of the stuff that we'd been we'd done had never been done before right no. but once it's been figured out we can teach you how to do it pretty much and i want to teach people a process of breaking down problems not literally here's how you do this one thing yeah because when something <laughs> new comes along they're like hey, um, how do i do this new thing right and i've been very fortunate in my life that i figured out how to take on problems and solve just about any problem. And so that's the operating system that we create and we try and teach people that. And the mm-hmm. ones who demonstrate intelligence, ability to learn, uh, adaptability, neuroplasticity, then we are like, you're the in, you're in a leadership position. Right. And then they take that on. Is the, um, and I apologize that I don't know the answer to this, but the, the production company is still fully working like it's a full no no it's not oh it's not future is the future future is the only company we have okay and that is the training and education yes uh, uh, point of view yeah Uh, one of the things that i found really interesting was was hearing um uh i want to say amelie it's amelie Annalie. 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 okay Annalie. right uh in, in in your conversation with her that um that you have like a cadre of training, like it's a training group, like an umbrella group that helps bring people in and out and they all follow the methodologies and the, it's such an interesting, an interesting idea. Was that all part of, and this is so weird to ask, but is that all part of like learning the business and saying like, you know, what would work is this, or is it, you had developed this idea through observation? That's a very good question, and it's going to be disappointing for a lot of people to hear this answer, which is, I don't have great plans. You, <laughs> I really don't. It's not like there's no. a master plan, and I'm not a big believer in master plans. Right. And it turns out I have kindred spirits out there where they also believe that plans are BS because you have to be able to react. So you have a goal, and your goal should be clear, and mm-hmm. you should be somewhat inflexible with your goals. You should be super flexible with the means in which to get to that goal. Because it would be crazy to try one thing over and over again and just fail one time after the other and then not develop a new plan. Right, right. I'm going to get to my goal. I just don't know how to get there yet. yet. So this whole, I think you're referring to the Future Pro group, which is a community of 800 800 people. And they joined. It's a monthly thing. And they're not following one plan. There are multiple plans. And everybody gets to pick what they want to do and the pace in which they want to work at. Ideally, they would follow the plan. (laughs) <laughs> but there's so many different plans and so many different people. So well, all, all businesses are different, are they not? I mean, in most cases, yeah. I mean, the, the core the core tenets of how you make money is the same, but same. you know how you deliver your goods and how you deliver your services are typically going to be a little bit different across the board. Correct. Um, it's I, I, I we have a relatively similar background in which I studied illustration and I okay. stumbled into programming. So mm. I'm an accidental programmer that okay. makes art on his own time sort of thing. And it's, it's such an interesting thing. And, and, and you're not, I don't want to say you're not unique. You're not unique as far as like 
this group that started around 94, 95, you know what I mean? Like everybody sort of went, oh, there's the internet. And all of a sudden it was just like a tidal wave of experimentation and discovery. Yes. Do you find now, uh, uh, although hmm, I was about to say something contentious, but I don't want to say it because I think, I, no, well, I was going to say, do you find now up until the second, up until the second AI started really delivering super cool shit. Do you, did you find that we had entered a sort of static creativity scene where there was like a, well, you know, there's NFTs and you could do whatever. But as soon as we really got into AI delivering on a latent creativity, like I become excited again with what I'm seeing online versus like before I was kind of like, meh, you know, maybe. Are you sort of, did you, were you in that mood or were you kind of like, no, I'm embracing everything? I think I'm going to embrace everything. And I think that observation is unfortunately a side effect of getting older. So when you're young, <laughs> my sorry. Own, you, my own perception. Just, that's fine. I can live with that. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're young, everything's new and exciting and fascinating. I remember when I got the latest issue of Beach Culture and just pouring through like David Carson's layouts and trying to like... Right understand reverse engineer everything like well this freaking cool matt Mahern. oh my god he looked the lens this is freaking cool dave mckeon right. sure. that's all real and you take a photo what it's not photoshop so you go through that phase and then five ten twenty years into it you're like i've seen a lot i'm not saying i'm a jaded old man but i've seen a lot so it's just a matter of perspective the longer you live the less new stuff phases you and to a little kid, every experience is new. When you get your first package from the post office or from UPS, it's like, it's a miracle. Yeah. I think that's why you find that your parents stop being interested in like doing online banking, you know, like that's, uh, you know, this is, I'm just confused by all of it. I'm not, I, you know, I, I want to say that I, I wasn't dissatisfied with what I was seeing. The problem that I had was and it it actually remains is I had a real issue with the idea that someone could post a bunch of photos that were based off of somebody else's art style and say, I'm going to make prints off of this. And I'm like, mm, but I don't, I prefer, you know, but that's all, that's just because I'm sitting here making art and turning around and going, thanks for the likes. Would you also like to buy <laughs> this, this piece of art? <laughs> you know, Likes are great, but they don't pay the rent. I'm more excited now by it because I sort of see it as less of a, I see it less commoditized than I, than I had before, like mm -hmm. accidentally commoditized, you know? Yeah. So I have a, a, a point of view on this that will probably be polarizing to some people. I'm sure of it. <laughs> and I'm willing to tread in there. Do it. Not even Do lightly. It. I'm just going to go in. Right. So in. Let's look at a couple different things. If you look at the, the longer perspective of how we as artists, designers become who we are, we're an amalgamation of different inputs. Definitely. We're not fully aware of them. The things that we read, the movies that we watch, the comic books that we touch and the, the things that we put under this big giant soft umbrella word called research, mm -hmm. which is basically mm -hmm. in, in less kind words that people would use a swipe file. What is that all about? Well, we're the human computer. We synthesize different points of view. Like mm -hmm. I mentioned Carson, Matt Mahern. So when I was in that phase of my life, I was designing things as closely as possible to what they were doing. And that was the high mark. If I could do that, right. not literally use their elements, I've done a good thing. And so we're a learning machine and we're trying to adopt different styles and we synthesize things. Now, what happens is part of the human computer forgets. 
to protect our ego. Hmm. We, we pretend like we didn't find this somewhere. We, we hide our sources and we're sometimes afraid of being quote unquote discovered in the sense that, oh, you mean this? Right. right? You, you, oh, this is your new original work? You mean that it was done 35 years ago? Right. Yeah. Right? And there are quotes something like this. The secret to originality is the ability to hide your sources. And it's a fabulous <laughs> saying because it's, it, it puts its finger on the truth. Right. Which is if you copy what everybody copies, it's, it's like work that's very derivative. We can all see your sources. Mm -hmm. When you go in, and I remember this too, like in the early 2000s, I saw work being done by some of my friends. I'm like, that is so, so weird. But the guy grew up in Thailand. So right. he has these magazines from cinema from Thailand that has strange characters and color palettes and compositions. He was drawing from that. And I didn't know at the time. Yeah. And I'm seeing his work. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so freaking cool. Right. And he goes, that's the secret shelf over there of the weird stuff that we have printed ephemera that people can't get in the United States. And that was original. And they're winning awards and getting the accolades. Right. It wasn't that it was original. It's just because we didn't know where it came from. It was original right? to you. Yeah. It's just original to you. And there's very, and, and people are getting upset about this. I think it's very arrogant and ignorant to say this work was original. Right. It's arrogant to think you did it by yourself and ignorant because you don't know that this stuff has been done for decades. And this is what your older professors would tell you. Right. You no, know, that is just a know your art history, kid. It's this who did this and this yeah. idea. And those two people put this together. You're just rehashing it. Here's right. the example I want to put out to everybody. Shepard Ferry. People are like, I love Shepard Ferry's work. I do too. I have some of his prints. Mm -hmm. And then he gets sued by the AP photographer because he used a photograph of Obama and there's some issues. But oh, this right. is not the first time Shepard has run afoul. Do you know his whole company, his idea, Obey, is a complete ripoff of a movie? So there's this movie called They Live, and he watches this movie. And right. the premise is there are aliens living amongst us, hiding in plain sight. Right. And Rowdy Roddy Piper has a pair of glasses. When he puts them on, he can see them for the real people that they are, the aliens. Mm -hmm. And underneath all these like benign advertising campaigns are the words Obey. Right. set in futura condensed oblique you're like what the fudge and so all <laughs> these things come from this movie right so he just goes out and he translates it and this is part of creativity is taking something from one media or one format and translating it to another and then you're called original right so this whole concept of obey and then the andre the giant was like some silly joke and he uses the style of alexander rochenko and the great russian constructivist and quite literally ripping off things and then puts it together and there's this weird movement and then he post-rationalizes it, calls it ephemera or whatever, you know, and it becomes <laughs> an art speak thing. And he does this forever without ever really making real money as an artist, right. mostly as a commercial artist. And then comes along the Obama poster and his whole career blows up. So the, the, the thing I have is people, please, trying to let go of this idea that you have to do work that's good that is original because just being competent is really freaking hard to begin with mm -hmm. just start there right? right because i remember there's a classmate of mine at art center in the 90s and she decided to typeset her design in the most weird way flipping letters backwards randomly and just it was hmm. garish. It was hard to read. And she goes, I'm being really original. I said, yeah, it's an original piece of crap is what you're doing. 
<laughs> if that's what you want to do, cool. I'm going to try to do tasteful, beautiful design right. that, that pulls people in, but yet is captivating and all that kind of stuff. And it's still legible and functional. So and there, she, and there she goes. Right. Yeah, and well, so there's the problem, right? So if we humans are doing this and we, we deny that it's happening, then that's a, some level of self-delusion. Sure. So when we use computers to aid us in the synthesizing images and words and concepts together, why we got a problem right here? I think as we watch our workforce in general be decimated. It'd be nice if we were working towards figuring out how to get AI to just do random work and let and let people be creative and just do their thing. You know, I mean, like if an artist gets better because of AI, that's fantastic. If the average person still has to schlep themselves to an office when really it'd be awesome if they could be creative as well, but they don't have time to do that because, you know, that's the way it is. Is that the fault of the person who slept on their way to the office that they, or is it the fault of whomever capitalism? I don't know. I, I, this well, is I a broader conversation. It's so strange. I don't, I don't mean to get down that path. Do I you want thinking, to go down this path? No, no, no. I don't think it's a okay. good idea. Right. I think it's, I th you know, it's interesting when you said it's going to be a c contentious. I don't think it's contentious. I think, I think you're 100% right. I think, I think we, we have a, we tend to, and even when I was complaining, it was like, I was ignoring the fact that everything that I have learned has been learned based off of observation and experimentation and research. And I 100% agree. You know, my wife is a, a quilter and textile artist. And, and we have talked a lot about how people go, well, that's a really original design. And she's like, well, I've learned how to accommodate new ideas in a very old art form. And it's, it's such a refreshing thing. And it's, it's really opened my eyes to how I work as I no longer see the things that I learned when I was in college, you know, 30 years ago as being sacrosanct to how I do my work, right? Now, that's not even that new to me, but it is one of the things that as a person who set goals for themselves in terms of creating art, it helped to allow myself that freedom to say, I'm, al I'm allowing inspiration to come from anywhere, you know, and it, it's, it helped me embrace in seeing in seeing the the rise of AI art, allowing me to embrace, there's a potential for the stuff I do being translated into that, so that maybe the stuff I do becomes killer. I don't know. There's always a history of uh, like this, like protectionist attitude. Yeah, yeah. There's a, you know what I'm talking about. And let's just yeah. take a bigger picture, right? So uh, this is America's fraught with this in its history when one set of immigrants comes over and then the next immigrants come over. You're the outsiders and we're the insiders. Yeah. You know, it's like when the Irish and the Italian come over and then all of a sudden the minority becomes part of the majority is integrated. And now we hate the Chinese and then we hate the whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just happens over and over again because it's always like this mentality of us versus them. Mm -hmm. And so when we are protecting whatever it is and it's horribly biased, and we say, well, what is happening right now? And I don't, I'm not trying to be an advocate for a machine because no. they don't need advocacy. No. But people will say things like, that's not art. I'm like, when you look at this end product. Doesn't it look like art? It meets, it meets my passive art because you're being <laughs> racist or whatever. I don't even know what the word is at this point. Yeah. Saying that a machine made that. And like, if you couldn't tell the difference between a machine making and a human making it, then that's bias and mm -hmm. that's prejudice. And yeah. art is something that makes you feel something. And then they swear a soulless machine cannot make something that makes me feel like I beg to differ. Right. Right. I'm seeing things that the, the ability to combine multiple parts of influences and bring something together 
other new combinations is happening so rapidly. We're like, wow, yeah. that's wild. Like it's beyond what I would have thought of because I can't get that freaky with my images. Yeah. My, I'm limited uh, by my experience, right? Uh, my friend, uh, Stefan, who is one of the co-hosts of this podcast normally, but he, he was talking on the weekend about the fact that he, he was writing a research, he was doing research on AI and he's like, and it was last, I want to say it was last summer. He said he couldn't keep up because every single time he came to the conclusion, well, this is what AI is capable of. The net, he's like, the next thing was already out. Like he couldn't, he couldn't keep up with the advancements. It's happening too fast. As soon as it was released, we're talking iterative change and an exponential yeah. change based off of the number of people using it and the reaction time and, 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 and how people are, uh, are making things with it. It is yeah. an interesting thing. And do you, do you actually see how your training and your education models might be assisted and changed through AI? 1000%. Yeah. Now here's the strange thing. My, my older brother, he's four years older than me. He's a software engineer, a Stanford grad student. Oh, in computer science. Right? I want to be, that's great. About two years ago, before any of this was happening in the pandemic, we were having Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner together. He says, you know, do you, are you familiar with AI and machine learning? And like many things, I thought it was a lot algorithms like how google works and he goes something right. like that you just train on a set of data and figure i couldn't understand it. and he's not great at explaining the highly technical things to uh, a neophyte like myself yeah we'll say later and he's like yeah so <laughs> he's like think amazon i'm like okay amazon is looking at massive amounts of data and the computer just figures out not a human what people want right and what to order and in certain patterns and then they use that data to have a competitive advantage. Netflix does the same thing. It doesn't write it. They don't write an algorithm to figure out what movies people want. They just say, look at this data set, look at this data set and predict what people want. And it'll just figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then you give it feedback to say, you're on the right path. You're on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. So he was like, look at your business and figure it out. And I could not figure it out. Right. And then all of a sudden mid journey. And then Lenza and then right. uh, Chat GPT. And I'm like, Stable that's fusion. what he was talking about two yeah, years yeah. ago. That's Boy, amazing. did I miss another golden opportunity. What a well, donkey I am, right? Do you, but do you think you, do you think it's a matter of missing it or it's a matter of you just, it, that was an opportunity that you weren't ahead of the curve and now you're just on the curve with everyone else? I like, think it's missing because. Does it bug you? Does that bug you? Does it, it feel does like bug a, me. a failure a little bit? Not a failure, but a powerful painful learning lesson yeah it's like if i told you what the winning lottery numbers were six months in advance and you're like nah yeah stupid and by the way i don't mean i didn't say you were a failure i said does yeah. that moment feel like a failure a failure to translate oh. what what he was saying into you know something yes valuable. and he's done this many times and so i keep thinking when am i going to learn it's just he's so far advanced <laughs> right you know he told me many many years ago he goes this is company you know how like there's a swap meet, but they do this online. You shouldn't invest in them. They're called eBay. <laughs> like what? There's this company. They sell books online for a little bit less money than you would buy them in the store. They're called Amazon. I'm like, right. what? He was doing this all the time. Yeah. It's, it's a, like somebody's giving you the hot tip from Silicon Valley. And I just keep dropping the ball. Cause I'm like, here's swear. You know, this is the true story here. 19. At 95, I start blind. 
this is the dawn of the web, web right. 1.0. Mm -hmm. I literally called him one, one morning. I'm like, uh, what is the web? What is the internet? Explain it to me. He couldn't explain it to me then either because <laughs> he explained it to me like a scientist would, right? Yeah. And then he said, you know, can you think of some common names that people will want to register? Because I want to buy domain names because they're going to be valuable one day. What are domain names? <laughs> well, I kind of understood because he bought me, he helped me to buy blind.com. Okay. Which is okay. non-existent today. Like, you know, one syllable, five letters.com, all of them have been taken. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, his name is Arthur. I'm like, Arthur, this is tough. We're talking about pennies, right? Like, what do we, like, I don't want to waste my time thinking about this. Right. And had we registered whatever we wanted to register, I would be sitting on a hundred million dollars right now. Yeah. Right. So he's been doing this over and over again. This, this is a tangent, but I'm just saying this is the Herald. The Herald comes in to disrupt your life, the ordinary world that you live in. Mm -hmm. There's a call to action. Hey, domain names, uh, invest in eBay, uh, take advantage of AI machine learning. I'm going to give you a two year head start and every other person that's out there do something with that creative brand and figure it out. Yeah. And each and every single time I've, failed <laughs> so here's the thing the few times in which i've acted have not worked out so i'm like oh there you go yeah. i'm just picking the losers not the winners but he has winners all the time yeah it's and as you have as you've increased your financial freedom do you find yourself being willing to take a bit more risks when it comes to you know horses that leave the gate fast and you're just like fuck it i'm gonna I'm going to invest in this and it, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, or are you, do you feel you're kind of a cards close to the chest kind of guy? I I feel like I, I, I make big moves, but sometimes I look at myself, I'm like, are you playing small? Or are you really playing big? You tell yourself you're playing big, but I'm limited by this one belief and I'll just tell it to you. Mm -hmm. I believe in the power of hard work and using your intellectual capital, your creativity and your God given talents to use money to amplify right. it. I'm not a big believer in putting money into things that I don't participate in because that's not a way that I learn and grow. I could have bought Bitcoin when somebody told me to do it, mm -hmm. but it goes up and it goes down, but you've not changed as a person. You've not learned anything. Yeah. So I think there's what I would call like dumb money and smart money. Hmm. Dumb money is when you put money into someone else's care and then they make it grow. Right. Right. You're not influencing it. So the most that you're going to get is just money and it's neutral. Mm -hmm. But if you take that money and you invest it in a property because you fix it up and you put, you do landscaping, you get some curb appeal, then that's smart money because you've applied some skill and talent and that money works harder for you and you have greater um, transparency over what is happening and you have autonomy. Right. When my brother says, put money in the account and buy these things, I'm like, there's no creativity as a creative person. I can make money, but that doesn't fulfill me. And I yeah. keep making those same mistakes over and over again. I, I want to think it's a very Gen X perspective, like, you know, having grown up being really self-sufficient and, you know, we call ourselves like the latchkey generation, the idea that the things that we get are because we work to get them. And I, I don't see any difference in how you describe that. And it's like, it's such an interesting thing because we're dealing with generations now where they weren't introduced to the web. The web already existed. The things that happened as advancements are now commonplace to generations past us that were where we were surprised and going, oh my God, this is amazing. 
it's so commonplace to my, my kids. They just embrace every single new thing as that's just one more new thing. It doesn't matter. You know, and I'm like, okay, you know, and every time someone says to me, I want to be a, you know, one of my kids say, I want to be a YouTuber. I'm like, all right, I'll, here's a computer. Here's a webcam. Here's gaming. I don't know what you want to do with it. Here you go. You, you go be a YouTuber. And then like, you know, they realize the amount of effort involved in being, in being a content creator. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm editing videos for them. I'm like, I don't want to, that's not my job. You understand? So you're going to have to figure out how to do that. When you went through the process of becoming a content creator and you started to filter through your life and saying, now I'm teaching. This is my job. My job is education. My job is helping direct careers and direct businesses. And I just wonder, do you find it fulfilling? Is that a, is that a fulfilling goal? Like when you say to yourself, I, I got an email and somebody said, Hey, I took this course and my business has improved X percent. Like, is that a thing that you, you take to heart and, and appreciate, or is it more of a, this is just part of my job? No, um, I appreciate that. And that's the, that's the metric that I measure success. And it's the number of lives positively impacted. Many years ago, I was watching this YouTube video. What else? A guy giving a TED talk and he was speaking so fluidly. I'm like, who is this person? His name is Jason Silva. Okay. And if you look him up later, you'll see like why I'm drawn into this man's ability to speak his oration skills. Mm. And he said in the 21st century, the new billionaires will not be measured by the amount of money they have in a bank account, but by the number of lives they positively impact. And I was like, I'm on board, sign me up. So for a good portion of my adult life, I've identified as a graphic designer. Very specifically, people ask you, what do you do? Who are you? I'm like, I'm a designer. I'm a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. Typography is my jam. Right. But there was an identity that was older than designer. It was teacher. Right. Before I learned how to design, I was trying to help other people achieve. And when we get in touch with the parts of us that give us great joy, love, and and just the things that we're very passionate about, and we can figure out a way to make a living doing it, we're kind of in our zone of genius, and this mm -hmm. is a beautiful thing. And so for a long time, I taught for love, but not for money, because you know this, teachers don't make any money. Right. Right, sadly. And when I found an ability to teach in the style that I wanted at scale, I figured out a business model that can allow me to do this forever. And I want to help you know, you've heard of this concept called the forever home. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like adopting a dog or whatever. No, no, no. A forever home is like a home that you live in forever that you, Oh my God. In. Okay. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My mom's living in the house that my grand grandfather built. So I, yeah, I, I just have never heard anybody call it a forever home because you yeah, just I live think in it. It's a movement in architecture because there's so much waste and building, remodeling, tearing things down. Mm -hmm. So there's issues about sustainability, energy usage and, designing for for real people to live in not these spec mcmansions and all that kind of stuff apologies right. anybody who lives in one well, well. you know so it's one of these things where it's really thoughtful in its design its orientation how it uses energy uh, to be as carbon neutral as possible so someone can live in it forever mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay and and so i want to think about a concept called the forever business a business in which you will never want to sell 
that you don't get burnt out doing and you don't look forward to the weekends. You can't wait for every week work day to kind of appear because you're so engaged and thrilled by what you get to do, not what you have to do. Right. And you're compensated in a way that makes you feel that you're being rewarded for the creative input and the impact that you, you bring about in the world. Mm-hmm. And so when I figured that out, oh my gosh, I'm living the dream. Yeah. I, well, right. It is, it is. Um, I used to, I used to say, and I, I started to say it again, and is that, you know, if you're making art or if you're doing anything for someone else to compliment you, then you're not doing it for the right reasons. If you incidentally do something that you've been doing to please yourself and it pleases someone else, then it's, it can be satisfying. But if you're intentionally going out to help people and to do things for people without thanks, then it, it tends to be the most satisfying thing. You know, I don't, um, I've been, I've been running, I ran a, an art project for a year where it was from um, Pride Month 2021 to Pride Month 2022. Long exposure and, you know, pride flag stuff, photography work. And at one point, somebody had said, uh, enough with the rainbows. And I was just like, man, I'm not doing this for you. <laughs> what, what, what do I care if you like it or don't? And then, and then a lot of people jumped on and said, like, you understand what he's doing, right? Like, this is not a, this is not a thing in which he's trying to make money. I was, any prints I sold were, I was donating all that money to whomever LGBT led organizations. So it wasn't about me. It was, it wasn't about anyone in particular. It was all about making something that made me feel good. And anytime someone from the LGBT community messaged me and said, I just, I can't believe how important this is for me to see this right now. I'm like, well, that's all I care about, you know? And it is, and that is the metric by which I, I gauged whether or not I was successful in that project. And it is, it's a heartwarming thing to get that acknowledgement that you were never asking for. Yeah. Do, do you find that you are spending more of your time now with your organization, within your organization, trying to teach that to, to the people that work for you is the idea that this is not about, this is about helping others or, or are people coming in on board with that concept? Good question. I think the best way you teach is through leadership and by living by example. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy for me to say because I'm the person who runs the company, who's running a multi-million dollar company teaching and saying we're doing it for love, right? Everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're not bringing home millions of dollars themselves. They're not they can't retire tomorrow. They're working too. Sure. But here's the really cool thing about a, a purpose-led transparent business such as ours, which is you onboard a lot of fans. Right. Some of those fans are incredibly talented and smart. Mhm. In a subset of those group want to help you in the fulfillment of your mission. And, and so then we say, we don't want to hire people who want to collect a paycheck. Yeah. We only want to hire people who are drinking the Kool-Aid with us. <laughs> That's <I'm> it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You got to be on board because otherwise I don't want you because I can choose someone else and I would prefer to choose someone else. So when, when, when we find these right people, they have great joy and they share in the success and their stories and they feel fulfilled. 
whether they have a direct or indirect hand at helping a young man or woman just not want to give up. Because we're not even talking about business success at this point. We're talking about people who say, man, I was going through some dark times. I'll share a real story with you right now. Yes, please. Guy messages me on LinkedIn. He goes, uh, my father was fighting cancer and we thought he was going to make it. He didn't. And he passed away, you know, X months ago. And I've been in a really dark place. And I don't know exactly what he means when he says this, but I thought about giving up. I don't want to read too much into this. He says, in this really dark period, I find your videos and they're the only thing keeping me here. Now, I'm not saying anything more than that. Right. And you know what he says afterwards? He's like, I don't have the money just yet, but I will join your community because you've done so much for me. So he's going from like bottom of the bottom in terms of his emotional low Mm -hmm. saying that we've helped him. And a lot of people say this to us. They apologize because they can't give us money right now with a promise to fulfill this sometime in the future. Now you want to say like, does your logo, does your illustration, does your website create that kind of impact in people's lives? It's hard to beat this. Yeah. And so you can get addicted to this. And I am fully aware that there is some kind of dopamine, whatever oxytocin hit that I'm getting from this (laughs) for sure. And I believe this, that human beings um, are sort of predisposed, 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 predisposed. human beings are predisposed to want to do good, to help other people. They should, they should be predisposed to that. You know, it's, it's an interesting, I think we are, I believe it in my heart. I don't even think it should be. It is. If you give people options, right. Where they don't have to quite literally fight to put food on the table, they will choose a path towards the light versus a path towards the darkness. Um, that's well, my belief. Agree to disagree. I, I think Fine. I think there are people who intentionally choose to put themselves above others, you know, and, and it's it's a it becomes extremely obvious when you watch the news and you and you see people making choices that do not benefit anybody but themselves. So, you know, I don't I I think I think at our at the core, people in general would prefer to help others than to benefit only themselves. And some people in a sliding scale, some people would benefit themselves while helping others. And some people really just help others without any type of strings attached. Right. <laughs> it's, it, it, that's just how we are as, as people. I don't think that's a problem either. I think in a lot of cases, when you align yourselves with, uh, when you can align yourself with a like-minded person, uh, as long as the, the goal is beneficial and benevolent and, and kind, then you can feel okay about that. I think you had said like, can you look in the mirror and and be okay with what you see sort of thing? And I'm like, yeah, you know, if the actions you have taken reflect upon you in a way that is negative, then perhaps those actions were a a mistake and you should look at the things you've done and, and correct accordingly. Allow me to make one small argument and then we'll put this one to bed and agree to disagree <laughs> if that's the case. And I don't want people to think I'm I'm looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. I don't think I'm not you a are. Pollyanna, right? So I I think, and I'm loath to do this, but I'm gonna quote Kanye West here. I think he said this. Where hurt people hurt people. Sure. And I'm not saying that we need to live in a victimized society and we don't take personal responsibility because I'm the opposite. I really believe in taking personal accountability here. Mm-hmm. But when we say everyone has a fair chance to make it in the world, man, woman, gay, straight, 
transgender, whatever it is, and we have equal opportunity, equal access to resources, and then that would remove a lot of the resentment and the anger that people feel. Imagine uh, uh, some, some hardworking man or woman isn't able to provide for their children and is having a really hard time. It's being crapped on every single day of his life or her life. Sure. Then goes home and takes it on the kids. And that kid goes on to become some kind of sociopath, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like we can see these, these chain events kind of sort of being linked together. And then those people do want to hurt people. And you're right. Mm-hmm. And we hear about them in the news all the time. It's also one of the reasons why a couple of years ago I stopped reading newspaper. I stopped reading. I just stopped periodicals, magazines, news. I just stopped watching because what the news does is it plays on our emotional desire to hear sensational stories. Yeah. More we, now. We hear the worst of the worst. More now. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's been a multi-decade long progression here, but we're yeah. in a place right now where hot button topics, this politician, that corrupt individual, this scammer, but then we don't hear about the fourth grade teacher who just made Sally's life a little bit better because that's yeah. not a sensational story. So we yeah. have a disproportionate amount of reporting on things that are bad, mm-hmm. and it makes us more suspicious of our neighbors and our friends. Has the world so changed so much so in 50 years when it used to be that you would worry that you don't want to lock your door because your neighbor might need a cup of sugar? Right. Like, is the world that different? It's not because now we're hyper saturated with information about the negativity to be suspicious to be scared and that's what we become mm-hmm. so i still think well, in a modern sure. society i mean you don't you don't walk into your neighbor's yard and just take stuff out of their yard you could and nobody would even know mm-hmm. so our society our community our civilization works because we've made an implicit agreement not to hurt each other and to sometimes look out for each other yeah. And we've seen stories and these are the stories that I think would should be shared more where somebody sees like a dog drowning in a river and risks Goes life and, and limb. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. It's like, who's doing that? Well, people, people who care <laughs> about things that they shouldn't even care about. Yeah. You know, so, and, and, and listen, I it's it's funny, but it, it's, it, you know, it's it's one of those, I think the, I think the phrase is with all things being equal, right? Like with all things being equal, we would all be friendlier and better and but generational trauma is what it is and it is this is how we this is how we exist but i really do believe our base line is wanting to help one of the things that i'm really curious about is such a straight and i know it's really really bad it's like we were we're talking about tangents really tangential but like one of the things that i experienced once i started podcasting Mm. uh, once i started public speaking and then i started podcasting uh secondarily but one of the things that I noticed was I became very concerned about the way I speak in, in that I love enunciation now. It's really important to me. And one of the things that I caught you saying was important. But if you hear someone who doesn't do this all the time, they'll say important, right? They'll end that first T. And I wondered... At what point was it? Was it really early on when you started to take a real interest in it, or was your elocution and enunciation always kind of bang on, and you it, it was just all part of it, or have you found yourself sort of constantly on guard of slipping up? Shoot, you're going to make me <laughs> hyper self-aware and self-conscious. It's unintentional. I do it all the time. Anytime I say ability, Darn. ability, ability right. is a word that I, dude, I will always go ability, and I'm like, that's not a D ability like it's right. 
Is it something so, that you that you sit there and think about sometimes, like as you're I getting do. ready to talk? Yeah, but maybe not like the way you think about it. Mm. English is my second language, right? And I didn't have a model at home to figure out words, and so oftentimes I would read the words incorrectly. Ah, okay. And and feel very self conscious because is it Connecticut? Like, what the heck is that C doing in there? <laughs> right. So you can go both ways on that and you can read things That's right. the way that they're spelled because English is such a strange language. Right. And there are many, many words like that where something is silent and the rules are not consistent across different words. I try to speak for clarity. Mm-hmm. And so enunciation is an important part to that. Right. I'm not trying to be perfect. I just want to make sure I don't sloppily slur words together so that you think I've been drinking or something. <laughs> That's all. I wouldn't have thought that, you know, uh, it is, it is something I also noticed. It's almost like a broadcaster way of being is pacing their talk so that mm. instead of doing a lot of ums and ahs, when you're interviewing someone who doesn't do this all the time, they tend to, there's a lot of ums and ahs, a lot of breaks in what they say. They don't, they're not already thinking of the next thing they're going to say while they're saying it. And it is an interesting thing. It's really satisfying to talk to you in this sense because of the fact that I don't talk to podcasters, right? Like that's not my, that's not, I talk to people I find inspiring that I hope can inspire the people who listen. And it's, it's immensely gratifying to talk to somebody who, who spends a lot of time in front of a mic. Like you're a lot of fun to talk to. Well, thank you. In general, but also because you can speak in front of a mic. (laughs) Well, I think people underestimate the value of pausing. And how pausing, when inserted intentionally, can create drama. Mm-hmm. It can add weight to words and thoughts and ideas, but it also gives you time to think. Yeah. You know, inserting pauses can break up the monotony. Some people have a very monotonous voice. Right. And so one thing that I'll tell people to do is if you want to be a better speaker, just try varying the speed in which you speak. So right. when you're really excited about a concept, speak a little bit faster without even changing your tone. And when you want someone to really listen and pay attention and you want to drive that point home, slow it down and add some pauses. It'll give your brain time to think too. And it's a wonderful oratory device or rhetoric. You know, these, these things that we've lost because of modern communication and changing emphasis on what is important in education. Yeah. I think, I think a lot about the time I spent not working and and what value that gives me. And, and I have, there's been a number of episodes of your podcast that I've managed to listen to where the discussion is about boredom being of value and creativity. Mm. And one of the things that I found really interesting uh, with the person you spoke to who'd written the book, 30 something laws of creativity, Joey Cafone, Joey Cafone. So one of the things and I loved it in the moment because you were like, I don't like boredom. I don't think boredom is helpful for creativity. He said, well, you got to understand the difference between boredom and stillness. And uh, the, the most creative you can be is when you're still and willing to accept what's around you and willing to bring things in when you're bored. It means you're looking for a reason to not be bored. Right. And that's such an interesting thing to me because the, the my moments of inspiration tend to happen when I'm working on other things, thanks to, you know, ADHD and whatnot. And usually it's because something is bothering me in the thing I'm doing that I start to think of things that I'd rather do. 
And that's where I get all of my inspiration. I want to do this instead. So you have created for yourself a sort of a stillness, like you, you give yourself time that is not anybody else's. It's just you. And how beneficial has that been for you since you started doing that? Can you rephrase that a little bit differently? Um, you give yourself time to just think. You give yourself time to not be uh, occupied by anything else. When around, about what time in your life were you, did you start doing that? Was it something that struck you as like you heard somebody say, I, I do this and you're like, well, oh, that's a really good idea. And how has that affected how you've moved forward since? I see. Again, it's one of these answers where someone might be a little disappointed in the answers they hear, but it's the truth. Well, I consider myself the hardest working lazy person I know. <laughs> so in the very beginning, when I started my company, I thought, shoot, the creative process is so difficult. I would like to share some of this pain with other people. I don't want it to be a lonely endeavor. That's funny. So I invited my former college roommate to work with me. He dropped out of school. He's a good guy. We get along. I like to hang out with him. Mm -hmm. So when I brought in a project, we would sit together and I would give him some of the work and some of the money and we would just do this, right. which then freed up my time. And I did this when I was 22, 23 years old. Mm -hmm. And I've enjoyed that because what happens is if someone's helping you to do the heavy lifting of the work, well, what are you going to do with your free time now? Right. Right. So it's like we free ourselves of the need to make money to live. What can we do? Well, I'm going to learn a new skill. Mm -hmm. So while he was working on logo sketches and different ideas, I was thumbing through Macworld magazine trying to figure out how to build an Apple Talk network so that we literally didn't have to pop disks back and forth. Right. And so I, I remember it's such a childish thing that one would think it's difficult to do because it's not difficult to do. But when you're 22 years old and you don't know anything about computers yeah. and you hook it up because you ordered a part from Mac Mall and you plug it in, it's like a eureka moment. Yeah. It's super addictive. So I started to become really addictive to learning, right? Addicted to learning, right? And that that was something that would then be a pattern and a habit for life. And my my girlfriend and my wife later on would just make fun of me. And she goes, I think you look at that Macworld magazine like most boys look at Penthouse magazine. I'm like, don't talk to me. Just don't talk to me right now. I'm like, oh, did you see the RAM and the megahertz on this oh thing? Oh my God. I'm reading every spec and I'll reread a boring article three times because like, oh my gosh, one day I'm going to make enough money. I'm going to get that video card right. or I'm going to get a 200 megabyte hard drive one day. <laughs> In that sense, then are you, you don't, you don't think of yourself as ever sort of going into just autopilot when it comes to your thinking, like, did you meditate or like, how do you free your mind from all the distractions that are around you? I wanted to say one thing about the way you work. You mentioned ADHD. Sure. There is some science and some very famous cousins who have been proponents for switching tasks to give mm. your brain a break from what it is you're doing. Yeah. Because yeah. you activate some other part that's much smarter than you. Right. Right. Some people call it system one thinking, system two, front brain, back brain, or, or active brain versus archival brain. Right. And it's something that I've come to recognize and to honor in my own creative process. Mm -hmm. The sooner you, anybody, 
can realize what it is that allows you to be in your flow state, to be your maximum in terms of your intelligence and your creativity, you should try as best as possible to codify that and to make it a system. Right. I, I used to kind of laugh at athletes who would have to wear one pair of socks that was one color versus the other. And if they didn't have that, they would have a bad game. Like, don't you realize it's psychological? And then yeah. I'm listening to science on this and the story people tell themselves. We basically achieve what it is that we allow ourselves to achieve in our mind. Mm -hmm. So when you don't think I'm a champion and, and this is my championship kind of routine, then you lose the game. You start right. to doubt yourself. So for me, I know this, my active brain needs to learn and it needs to consume and it needs okay. to reach saturation point, which is probably what you do when you're working. And then you're like, I have no more new ideas. I feel dry and empty. So your process is switch gears, which allows your archival brain, which is your smart of the two brains, mm -hmm. the brain that remembers everything that you've ever heard, seen, touch, or taste in your life, it allows it to get to work. Right. Mine just happened to be when I go to sleep. Oh. So what happens for me is I respect the process. I consume, I read, I cross-reference, I Im immerse myself in visual stimulation, and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. Then I go to bed, and before my, my, my mind slips into darkness, I just review what I looked at in my mind, like really quickly. What are we doing? What are we trying to solve? Right. And so I think about it a little bit. So it trains your subconscious to, in, in the relay race, to grab the baton from you, and then you mm -hmm. go to sleep. Right. And then it crunches through a thousand different versions of, of things. It connects things. And then by the time I wake up in the morning, if it's not immediate or in the shower or while I'm doing something very mundane, it'll all come rushing in and, and the idea will present itself. Right. And I'll tell my wife, you know, when I was brushing my teeth, I just came up with this idea. I think it's an epiphany. And she's so annoyed by me. She's like, again, it can't be that you can just do this effortlessly. <laughs> Feels but when you, when you know and respect your process and you honor it, these, these things that seem complicated and difficult to people will become as easy to you as breathing. Right. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, in a, I, I, my wife is also very tired of hearing me go, I've had this idea and then I'll, and then I'll tell her and she'll go, yeah, that's a good idea. Is it, is it a good idea to start right now? Or should you finish what you're doing? Mm. I'm like, if I don't start it right now, we'll never start it. And it, you know, the, the number of things around my desk that are good ideas that I'm just like, man, I wish I could just give this to somebody because it, it's just sitting there waiting to be done. But <clears throat> regardless, you've, a lot, you've given me so much more time than, than I asked for. And I, I truly, truly appreciate it. Chris, you have been a font of knowledge, which I assume is your natural state. Because you, damn, man, holy crap, you're great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed <laughs> our conversation. One of the ways I learn is through dialogue and to connect with people. Same, 100%. So, some people read lots of books. Some people meditate. I just have conversations with people. Yeah. And that, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think it is a, I don't want to say it's a lost art. I think that there are, there are some people who have really embraced getting to know individuals to see how it might help others. And I think that that's what I see from you. And it's how I have definitely tried to change my own path is to focus on what, what I can learn 
from my own perspective, what I can learn from someone else that may help other people. I, I just love that about what you're doing. And I think it's a, a tremendous, uh, tremendously respected thing. And I, I think it's fantastic. Well, thank you. I'd like to add one final point to this. Oh, yeah. Which is we get into a state of tunnel vision where we get myopic and things close down and we can only see what's in front of us. Yeah. And then we wonder sometimes like why we're stuck because we filter out all these other possible ways of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And the way I see it is whether you're young, you're old, you're black, white, Asian, Latino, you're man, woman, trans, like I said, you have a life experience and a perspective that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So if I approach it with curiosity and to assume that you have goodness and ideas and wisdom in your life, no matter how old or young you are, it would only enrich my life if I'm able to just to listen and to see the world through your eyes just for a brief moment. Right. For you to share a little bit of your light with me is a generous thing, and I want to be able to receive it. So I have to be open to it, first of all. I have that's to great. seek it. Yeah. And that's why when you have a conversation with someone, I want to have a conversation with my son, who, you know, we jokingly, he's like, is an idiot, whatever. Wow. But he has really interesting observations about how life is supposed to be structured, mm -hmm. what is fair and not fair. And that's how I keep in touch with people of his age and his generation, what they're doing. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. If you want to stay young, young at heart, young at young in mind, young in ideas, well, open yourself to more perspectives from young people. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.